0: Hi, folks. Welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003 Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take
1: care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
0: Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we celebrate the anniversaries of the greatest sports moments from back in the day. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I am very appreciative and grateful that you took time out to hear what I have to say on the subject of sports history, and this week we will revisit What many experts consider the greatest NBA Finals game ever in our main event segment. And also, we will send a shout out to a new football league that crowned their first champion 30 years ago this past week. And of course, our weekly top five, the five biggest events in sports to take place this week in history. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear. And check out our Twitter page at Historically SP2. And now, on with the show. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dana Auguster. And for this week's main event, we're gonna take a trip back night uh, of 45 years to June of 1976, and the NBA finals that on paper seemed to be a mismatch both record-wise and in historical legacy. The Boston Celtics, who had not won, who had not only won the NBA title two years earlier, but as a franchise, was looking for its 13th NBA title. Meanwhile, their opponents that year in the finals was the Phoenix Suns, a team who just came into the NBA in 1968 and was in the postseason for only the second time in the history of the franchise. The Suns was led by NBA Rookie of the Year Alvin Adams, fortifying the center position, and with addition of former Celtic Paul Westfall and original Phoenix Suns Dick Van Arsdale providing the scoring punch, Phoenix slipped into the playoffs finishing with a 42-40 record. However, in the postseason, Phoenix found their stride, defeating Spencer Haywood and the Seattle Supersonics in six games in the conference semifinals. And to prove that it wasn't a fluke, the Suns scored one of the biggest upsets in NBA postseason history, dethroning the previous year's champion Golden State Warriors in seven games to win their first Western Conference championship and earning their first trip to the NBA Finals. Meanwhile, in Boston, the Celtics were seeking to make up for the lost opportunity they squandered in 1975. That year, they finished with 60 wins, but lost to Washington in the conference finals. Uh, They kept the core of the team that won the 74 NBA Finals, but made some tweaks, most notably trading away Westfall to Phoenix for Charlie Scott. The Celtics won 54 games in 1975-76 season, then defeated the Buffalo Braves in the Eastern Semis. In the Conference Finals, Boston knocked off the miracle of Richfield Cleveland Cavaliers in six games to reach their 14th NBA Finals. The Celtics entered the Finals as a solid favorite and looked apart part as they took the first two games in Boston. When the series shifted to the Valley of the Sun, the, the series took a turn as Alvin Adams and Paul Westphal led the Suns and even the series at two games apiece heading back to Boston for the pivotal fifth game. In that game five, it began a lot like the first two games in Boston as the Celtics exploded out of the gate, leading at one point by 22 points. Yet, the Suns would begin to chip at the lead and began to close the gap as the end of regulation approached. The Celtics had one last shot to end the game in regulation, but the shot by John Havlicek rimmed out. After one period of overtime, just could not settle things as both teams would trudge into the second extra period. With 19 seconds remaining in the second overtime, Boston held a 109-106 lead with Phoenix with possession of the ball after taking its last time out of overtime. On the call for CBS is Brent Musburger, Rick Barry, and former NBA official Mindy Rudolph.
2: Crowd chanting defense. Lumpkin, Westfall, and Van Arsdale on the floor. Van Arsdale with a quick shot. It's a one-point game again. Just what Rick predicted. Westfall to the corner. Back to Van Arsdale.
0: Recap that incredible series of plays. The Suns' Dick Van Orsdale hit a short jumper from the corner, cutting the gap to 109-108. To the Celtics inbounded the ball to John Havlicek, but the Suns' Paul Westfall came seemingly out of nowhere to knock the ball out of Havlicek's hands. As his momentum was carrying him out of bounds, Westfall saved the ball to Van Orsdale, who passed it to Curtis Perry. Perry took an 18-footer from the left wing and missed. Havlicek went after the rebound on the Perry miss, but could not get a grip on it and ended up tapping the ball back to Perry on the left baseline. Perry then let fly from 15 feet away and made the shot to put the Suns ahead. Phoenix suddenly had a 110 to 109 lead with just five seconds remaining on the clock. The Suns poised to win, Willoughby's to win their third straight game and grab a three-to-two edge in the series, heading back to Phoenix. But if the Suns thought that the issue was settled, the Celtics certainly did not. Especially in Boston Garden, where big shots and incredible plays had been a staple of Celtic lore, especially on the, parquet, on the famed parquet floor. The Celtics would inbound the ball near the Suns' bench to none other than the man they call Hondo.
2: Collins, remember, is fouled out. So is Scott. Here come the Celtics. Clock will start when it's touched. Havlicek touches it. It begins. Three seconds. Hondo off the glass. He's got it with a second. John Havlicek won it. It's over. Two, two seconds to go. The Boston Celtics. But the clock should have gone out. Or did it have two or seconds to the floor. basketball game. Brent. The ball went in with two seconds to go. And the clock has to stop on a made basket. The Phoenix Suns will get the ball with two seconds to go. The this fight game is Richie Powers. Over. Richie Powers is in a fight with a fan right here in front. Luckily, Richie Powers was assaulted by a fan. They pulled the bore off. There are the cops out in the middle. They got fans out in the middle of the floor. The Phoenix Suns trying to get it cleared to get the two seconds off.
0: John Havlicek responded with a drive and a leaning one-hander in traffic that he banked in off the glass putting Boston in front 111 to 110. As the fans poured onto the court to celebrate Boston's apparent victory, the Celtics returned to their locker room. As CBS analyst Rick Barry passionately and correctly pointed out, the ball went through the hoop with 2 seconds left and the clock should have been stopped. The officials apparently agreed with Barry and ordered the Celtics back onto the floor. The game was not over. During the ensuing pandemonium, a fan attacked referee Richie Powers, and other fans turned over one of the scorer's tables. After clearing the court and getting the Celtics back on the floor, the officials put one second back on the clock. Still, Phoenix's chances seemed slim as they had the ball under their own basket with a second left. Then Paul Westfall of the Suns, even back then thinking like a coach, signaled for a timeout that the Suns did not have. Although this resulted in a technical foul being called on Westfall, the play was critical for Phoenix, because the rules at the time gave Phoenix the same advantage that they would have had with timeouts remaining to use, namely, possession of the ball at half court. Boston's JoJo White, who would later be named the series' most valuable player, made the technical free throw, increasing Boston's lead to 112-110. to During the timeout, fans were still... On the Boston Garden floor, even disturbing the Suns' huddle by their bench as coach John McCloud was drawing up a play for a possible time basket. The Suns players repeatedly had to shove the fans out of the way. Phoenix needed a big play and a big shot. A shot that would go down as one of the greatest shots in league history. Incredibly, the Suns had tied the score at 112 on a turnaround jump shot by Garherd, who etched his name in NBA lore by hitting one of the most dramatic shots in finals history. And the game continued on. Now to overtime number three. Throughout the illustrious history of the Boston Celtics, they've always had players that would come into games off the bench in crucial times and turn things around when things would look bleak. On this particular June night in 1976, it would be little used Glenn McDonald from Long Beach State. McDonald's clutch six points in the third overtime gave the Celtics a six point lead late in the third overtime. Westfall then scored the next four points for Phoenix, cutting the gap to two. But he nor the Suns could get the ball again as the Celtics would run out the clock and prevail 128 to 126 and a triple overtime thriller. Two days later, the Celtics would win their 13th NBA title in the Valley of the Sun. Led by Charlie Scott's 25 points, the Celtics would end the series with an 87-80 win, ending one of the most memorable finals in NBA history. The series as a whole lasted six games. However, Game 5 in 1976 will always resonate with fans and players alike, as the greatest game in NBA Finals history. And that was this week's main event. Welcome back to the show. Once again, I am your host, Dana Auguster. And before we get on with the rest of the show, one sign that we are growing here at Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network as a whole is we have a sponsor, and that is newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like me. And if you're into sports history, you need to check out newspapers.com. At Newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and more dating back from 1798 to yesterday. Get one free week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you'll also be helping support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com newspapers. Also, check out our Twitter feed here, Historically Speaking Sports, which is Historically SP2, for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you could drop us a line or two at our email address, which is Historically.Speaking.Sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes every week. And now, back to our show. to the show. I'm Dana Augusta, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. This week, in the top five, we will discuss a state-of-the-art baseball stadium that did something that no one had ever seen before. We also have two leagues announcing a merger agreement, a historic U.S. Open Golf Tournament, and a basketball franchise ending years of frustration on the very site of their biggest heartbreaks. Starting things off... Number 5. This week in 1989, a game between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Toronto Blue Jays became the first game in baseball history to begin outdoors and conclude indoors. It was the first season of the new State of the Art Stadium in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, known as SkyDome, as we know it now as the Rogers Centre, and it was the first stadium with a retractable roof. Midway during the game, with approaching thunderstorms in the area, the people at the Sky Dome flipped the switch and the roof began to close. Seven minutes later, the game would become an indoor contest between the Brewers and Blue Jays. Since then, retractable roof stadiums have been all the rage in North America, both in Major League Baseball and in the National Football League. But it all started back in 1989, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada with the impressive Sky Dome, which is still in operation today. Number four, this week in 1959, Charlie Sifford and Teddy Rhodes became the first African-American golfers to play in the U.S. Open. At Wingedfoot Foot Country Club, northeast of New York City, they made history as the first black men to tee it up in the U.S. Open. In a tournament that saw Billy Casper win with the two over par 282, Rhodes missed a cut after shooting scores of 77 and 75. Sifford would compile scores of 78, 72, 73, and 76 for the weekend, becoming the first African-American to finish the U.S. Open. At number three, this week in 1939, in Cooperstown, New York, the Baseball Hall of Fame opens. In a town in upstate New York where baseball was claimed to have been invented 100 years earlier, A shrine dedicated to the baseball heroes of the past as well as other contributors was officially dedicated. Number 2. This week, in 1966, the NFL and AFL announced its merger agreement. Both leagues would hold a common draft of college players, effectively ending the bidding war between the two leagues over top college prospects. The leagues also agreed to play an annual AFL-NFL World Championship game, matching the championship teams of each league, beginning in January of 1967. That game eventually would become, of course, known as the Super Bowl. The two leagues would officially merge in 1970 to form one league with two different conferences, specifically the AFC and NFC. The merged league would be known as the National Football League. The history and records of the AFL would be incorporated into the older league, while the AFL name and logo were to be officially retired. And finally, the number one event this week in history, 1985. The Los Angeles Lakers defeat the Boston Celtics in six games for the NBA championship. This would be the ninth time in the NBA finals that these two teams would square off. The eight previous meetings had ended in defeat for the Lakers. The two most notable was one in 1969 when the Lakers featuring Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, and the recently acquired Will Chamberlain were favored over an aging Celtic team but fell in in seven games. Also the year before, in 1984, the Celtics behind Larry Bird had outlasted their arch rivals in seven games for their 15th NBA title. However, one year later, the Celtics would finally win a title that had eluded them for years and in in years that ended in heartbreak and of all places on the famed parquet floor of the Boston Garden. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would be named the series' most valuable player as the Lakers would exercise its demons and finally win a championship against the hated Celtics and of all places in Boston Garden. concludes this week's top five and coming up next to wrap up the show we have a shout out and this week's shout out it deals with a football league that was truly international As usual, we will end the show with a shout-out. And this week's shout-out goes to what was called the World League of American Football, which began operations in 1991. This league was, of course, would evolve into NFL Europe. But 30 years ago this week, the league crowned its new champions when the London Monarchs shut out the Barcelona Dragons 21 to nothing in London's legendary Wembley Stadium. I remember watching the Super Bowl that year, and I saw a commercial advertising this new league, and I was immediately intrigued. I was further intrigued with the names and logos of the teams that were going to be part of this new league, and the fact that three teams would actually be based in Europe. The league played its first games on the weekend of March 23rd of 1991 with a total of 10 teams, three teams in Europe, one in Canada, and six in the United States. The leagues would be divided into three different divisions. The first one, the European division, consisted of the London Monarchs who finished that season as the league's inaugural champions led by former NFL quarterback Stan Gelbaugh. The Monarchs had the league's best record that year finishing with a regular, finishing the regular season with an impressive 9-1 mark. Their opponents in the World Bowl that season would be their division rival, the Barcelona Dragons, led by former Boston College head coach Jack Bicknell. Rounding out the European division was the Frankfurt Galaxy, who was coached by Jack Elway, the father of NFL Hall of Famer John Elway. And in the front office, general manager Oliver Luck, another former quarterback, former quarterback of the Houston Oilers and the father of another future NFL quarterback named Andrew Luck. Interestingly enough, all three European-based teams actually finished with winning records in that first year of operation. The teams in North America would be divided into two different divisions. In the Northwest Eastern, North American Eastern Division was the New York-New Jersey Knights, coached in that first year by Mouse Davis, who was the architect of the famous run-and-shoot offense. The Orlando Thunder, coached by Don Matthews of the Canadian Football League fame, Led was and also led by former University of Florida quarterback Kerwin Bell. Making decisions in the front office as general manager was a former University of Indiana coach that would make a bigger name for himself as a college football analyst named Lee Corso. This was my favorite team because of one main reason, the uniforms. The Thunder was the first team of in, in any sport to my knowledge to wear fluorescent green which, to a very impressionable 18-year-old at the time in 1991, was absolutely dope. They were one of the league's most popular teams playing their games in the Florida Citrus Bowl. Running out the North American Eastern Division was my favorite team name in the league, the Montreal Machine, who played their games in Olympic Stadium in Montreal. And the Raleigh Durham Skyhawks, who was the only team to finish winless in league play going 0-10. The team would only last one year in Raleigh Durham as the team would move to Columbus, Ohio and become the Ohio Glory. There will be three teams located in the North American West Division. The Birmingham Fire, coached by future NFL head coach Chan Gailey, and, play, and they play their home games at legendary Legion Field in Birmingham. The Sacramento Surge would be the league's western outpost playing their game at Hughes Stadium and coached by Kay Stevenson. And finally, the San Antonio Riders, who were led by future Oregon State head coach Mike Riley and general manager Tom Landry. Yes, that Tom Landry, the former Hall of Fame head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. On the field, the Riders would be led by future Cowboys coach in Jason Garrett who was actually the team's very first quarterback. Four teams, the Dragons, the Birmingham Fire, London Monarchs, and the New York-New Jersey Knights made the postseason. The Dragons defeated the Fire 10-3 while the Monarchs defeated the Knights in a high-scoring affair 42-26 to punch their tickets to World Bowl 91 at Wembley. The Monarchs were claiming 21-0 win for the first World Bowl title. The league was a huge hit, especially overseas, where it would change the name to NFL Europe in 1998 with all of its member teams in Europe. The Frankfurt Galaxy, one of the charter members of the league, would have the most championships with four. One of those quarterbacks that played for the Galaxy would later be an NFL MVP, Super Bowl MVP, and Hall of Famer named Kurt Warner. And that would conclude this week's show. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I'd like to thank everyone for listening in. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. And also hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: there sports history fan this is arnie chapman aka the football history dude and i hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the sports history network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets i started the sports history network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows we have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports year, starting with Podcast Network and our website. But we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even write an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter. Because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I am through if
2: you're through.